This is a Federal News Network podcast. The company is called Ditto, not a household name in defense contracting, but it just got an indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract from the Air Force worth close to a billion dollars, potentially. Here with the Air Force requirement it's hoping to meet, Ditto CEO and co-founder Adam Fish. Mr. Fish, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. Tell us what the problem the Air Force came to you with and awarded you this contract for. We're a young company based in California as a technology startup. And the larger aspect to this contract really goes back to the JADC2 effort, where the DOD, including the Air Force, is really trying to reimagine their entire network system behind all their military weapon systems. And so that's at the heart of what Ditto does. Ditto is a software platform that enables devices to connect and share data in real time, even in very austere or degraded environments, which is exactly you know what the military is operating in. So it sounds like the need is to connect, say, centralized systems or even cloud systems with the increasing thing you hear about so much as edge computing which might be the cube computers or the self-contained data centers, many, many form factors that go with military units, as you say, into those austere environments? Yes, absolutely. And this has become an ever more important aspect as the DOD has kind of shifted its focus towards near-peer competitors, where not only do you have to worry about the austere conditions that the military is operating in, but you also have to worry about having your communication systems broken or jammed. And that's something that is a real possibility when thinking about near-peer competitors. And so as a result, they really want to make sure that their networks are resilient to those problems. And the way to do this is actually to go back to kind of like the origins of the internet, where it was very much a peer-to-peer system, you know, back ARPANET, uh, MILNET, those early, early versions of even the commercial internet, we're all based in a peer-to-peer system where devices can operate semi-independently. Unfortunately, in the modern era, cloud computing has kind of inverted that, where things have become centralized, where you have a central server, and if that breaks, devices can't talk to each other. And that's not going to work for the military in, in these environments. And so they want to get back to a system that's resilient and can work, whether it's at the edge or in the cloud, in a more peer-to-peer mesh manner. And our software platform is something that helps enable applications to do that. Yeah, that's always the tension over the history of computing, really, is the central server and the small, thin clients versus that peer-to-peer where the computing is distributed. That's the essential issue here? Exactly. And it's funny how when you look back over the course of computing history, this has kind of come and gone in waves where it started out as a very centralized system where mainframe computers, you know, people would log in and it actually was kind of like a cloud computer where you would rent time at the mainframe, but then personal computers led for it to become distributed again. And then cloud computing kind of went back to the mainframe model. What we're seeing though, and this is in the military, but even outside of the military is that with mobile devices, edge type computing systems, you now have the processing power to do things at the edge versus having to go back to that central system. So it's really a confluent of several factors is that the computing system operating at the edge can actually do more today. And as a result, the military wants to take advantage of that. 
We're speaking with Adam Fish. He's CEO and co-founder of Ditto, which just got a very large Air Force contract. And just briefly, what is the technological means by which you can make sure that data is synchronized from central locations through an austere or interrupted environment to the edge computers when, in fact, the connections may not be there? Great question. The um, core premise behind Ditto is that today, any type of application, you know, if you go onto your mobile phone and you open up whatever your favorite app is, that application is going to talk to a central computer to get all the data that it needs. And so even if you send a message and you say, hey, I want to text message a friend, it's going to first go through a central server to go to that other person's device. And that central system is a point of failure. That's how we think about it like from a software architecture perspective. And having points of failure in your system is risky when lives are on the line. And so that is what the military is trying to solve is how can we take the points of failure between our data communication links and remove them and create multiple ways that data can move. And so the way that that works is that devices need to be able to create arbitrary connections with each other, such as two mobile devices. If you were standing next to each other, why can't that device just transmit the data to the other device using something like Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, a local radio versus having to use the cellular connection to go back to a server to send the data? And so that's the problem that the military has in a big way because they have so many different weapon systems with different radios. And so they have the capability to transmit data in different directions. But right now, those things don't really talk to each other. And so the JADC2 effort, broadly across the DOD, ABMS for the Air Force, which is what we're involved with, is a way to rethink how all those weapon systems talk to each other so they have resilient paths to transmitting data so that it doesn't get blocked. And you can always fly a carrier pigeon holding a thumb drive, I guess, in the last analysis if you have to. Exactly. It's a real thing. I think, unfortunately, in a lot of situations, movement of data could actually be involved in a more physical manner where people are carrying thumb drives, hard drives. That does happen. And it's something to think about is like that might be the most relevant or safe path to move data in certain situations. But at the end of the day, the software systems need to be able to handle data moving in multiple different paths. And that's a very different approach to building software than having one that always talks to a central server. And this is an IDIQ contract, which generally is for goods. So how does that work? Are they buying you copy by copy, depending on the unit that needs it? That is to say, are you offering a cloud-based service? Apparently not. Sounds like something that is replicated locally as traditional software licenses. Yeah, it's actually a little bit of both, because at the end of the day, there is a need for cloud systems. It's not that everything can work on the edge. No one would want that. There are benefits of both, where you need to have the ability for data capture at edge locations and have those systems be able to talk to each other independently. But then that data needs to get back to big, powerful central systems so you can do analysis on them. And that really would be the ideal situation, especially for ISR-type missions, where you might be out flying missions, capturing tons of information at the edge. And there might be some processing that happens there in real time, but then there needs to be the ability to move back that data to big systems to analyze it and then push those insights back out. And so that whole loop 
of data capture to data analysis and then action off of that. That, you know, is commonly thought of as like the chain that the DOD is trying to shorten so that they can act on that as quickly as possible. And that really captures the larger JADC2 effort. And so our software has applicability across all of that. Um, we have edge software that would be licensed, but there is also a cloud component for the analysis part as well. So the IDIQ aspect then is that different pieces of the Air Force have the opportunity to take advantage of the contract. Correct. Yeah. And it could be used for different purposes, different use cases, but broadly covering any of our software. And so there is definitely a variety of use cases that we see. For example, one would be involved with the Agile Combat Employment Effort, ACE, where there is you know, a lot of need to be able to quickly create like a remote base, perhaps in a remote area where everything has to be flown there and be carried in. And so you have to basically just like create everything very quickly. And so as a result, you need software that's very adaptable to that situation. And so that's where our edge software could really help in terms of the data capture at that remote location, but then it could be transferred back to a cloud backend for analysis. Not many companies with 30 people get billion-dollar potential IDIQs through the Federal Acquisition Regulations or the DFAR. A lot of them are getting OTA deals, but this sounds like a DFAR-based deal. How did you even know about the Air Force? Yeah, it's actually a bit surreal. Speaking personally, when we got started there is definitely a view in Silicon Valley of like, hey, is it a good idea to work with the government? Things can take a long time working with the government. It's a little obscure. And there was part of us, uh, our team, that, that was a little skeptical of it just because of that history. But this was something that was really exciting for us. And we felt like it was absolutely necessary that we needed to find a way into the military, given the nature of our product and how much impact it could have. And so we actually got started with the Air Force in a program called AFWorks. And so it's a small business innovation program that is designed to connect commercial companies like Ditto and bring them into the government. And so that was a great pathway for us into, and you know, it's, it's continued to snowball to where we are today, but uh, it's definitely been a very exciting ride. So in many ways, the government was one of your seed contracts to really get revenue into the company. Correct. Yeah. And that, that took a concerted effort where we wanted to make that a priority and that's something that I'm very proud of because I think the impact, the potential here is, is really significant. And I think, you know, more broadly, more technology companies need to be paying attention. We have big challenges ahead of us as a country in thinking about Russia and China and others. And technology is going to be a key player in that. And so right now, you know, the best technology is not being built inside the government. It's being built in commercial companies. And I'm excited that Ditto is able to take our technology and, and have an impact. Adam Fish is CEO and co-founder of Ditto. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on 
bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, I quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do 
set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. 
Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. <laughs> 